2: for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. And a word of warning, the episode you're about to hear includes discussion about some topics that some listeners may find distressing. If you or anyone you know needs help or support, please contact the 1-800-RESPECT helpline or lifeline on 13 11 14.
4: The system is broken. I don't
3: get the rules at all.
4: How far can we work within a system that we need to get rid of? I think men feel somehow women's liberation is a threat to their manhood. And it is. Tragically, I couldn't give a shit whether you think I have a right to speak up about anything or not.
3: People who make revolutions get burnt.
2: We started it here!
3: Maybe, you know, I've got some sort of crazy speak up about it mental illness. Change takes time. Do you have any regrets? No. Hello and welcome again to Broad Talk. It's wonderful to have you join us, hopefully I can say yet again, and welcome to the Changemaker Series. I'm Virginia Harsiger and it really is so lovely to have your company. This is a special series that we're bringing you in partnership with MOAD, the Museum of Australian Democracy housed in Canberra's Old Parliament House, where I've had the wonderful honour of guest curating a new exhibition on Australian women changemakers. Now, if you've been listening to this each week, and I certainly hope you have, you'll know that what we do is dive into the personal stories of some of those outstanding women. We sort of poke around a little bit about what it means to be a changemaker, how they got to where they did We talk about the challenges and we talk about the costs. And as you'll know, it produces some very real and raw at times, but some very inspiring stories. So if you want to reach out and chat to me about it, please do. You can email me at virginia at broadtalk.net. You can find us on Insta at Broad Talkers, Facebook, Broad Talk, or me, Virginia Hasker, or Twitter, Virginia underscore House. Today, it is such a pleasure to welcome Rosie Batty, who I've been wanting to speak with on Broad Talk for quite some time. Rosie is the woman who became a household name in Australia when she was named 2015 Australian of the Year. And at that time, I was actually standing on the parliamentary lawns right in front of the stage on the day that she was uh, made Australian of the Year, and I recall feeling a little anxious for her, as she walked towards the microphone to to make her acceptance speech. Now, I, and I've thought a lot about why was I anxious? I think because until that moment, we'd known Rosie as a grieving mother who'd lost her beautiful young son, Luke, tragically and brutally. But at that moment when Rosie spoke to accept the Australian of the Year Award, I believe she became the voice of our national conscience. Australia had for so long avoided having a nationwide public discussion about family violence, and Rosie Batty single-handedly has changed all of that. Rosie, welcome to broad talk our changemaker series it's so lovely to have you here. welcome. Thank
4: you Virginia. It's so nice to know that you were down in that audience oh, watching a very special moment and a very overwhelming moment. Um, it,
3: was, it was it was it was so over-
4: <laughs> and it was so daunting. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, you know me how am I am I you know why am I, how come I how can I be here
3: well you, you know I guess I felt nervous for you I look that's just what I, I I tend to do but I you you handled it and I'm sure you've been told yeah. this a, a one million times if not more you handled it beautifully but I just want to refer to something that you said in your book when you wrote about that moment and I've got look I'm just going to paint the scene for those listening. It was a beautiful day. I remember that. It was and a. It, it was a stunning day. It was warm. It was hot. Yeah, it was. And unlike the following year, where it poured rain, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. was a disaster. And it got rained
4: off, and there was an electric storm. <laughs> that's and right. The that's Prime right. Minister of the day, Malcolm Turnbull. We were looking at the lightning, forked lightning was happening in the background. He was oh. stood there with an umbrella, and we were thinking, Uh-oh. this could yeah. end very badly. <laughs> <laughs> this, <I know. laughs> having a. Current Prime Minister go up in smoke on live Absolutely. TV could have been.
3: Um, yeah. It was a shocker. It was a shocker. because And I was watching, I was at the front, I was actually in the, in the sort of VIP media section at the front and I was watching the band um, try to cover up cables and all that kind of stuff. It was a disaster. Anyway, that was 2016. But back on 2015 watching you, it was a really beautiful and it was just such a lovely day and lovely mm. moment, lovely evening. But what you said in your book was really interesting and I'm just going to quote directly because you put it so, so beautifully and in in the present tense, you said, a sea of faces look expectantly up at me. I feel a wave of goodwill from the crowd as if each one of them is silently reaching forward, holding me up. Now, that was such a beautiful description of a public embrace. What did it mean for you at the time? What, What What did it do to you? Oh, it it is
4: such a special moment. And, yes, there's so many things. It was such a bittersweet moment as well. I tear up thinking about it because, Mm. you know, how could I have got this award when my son was murdered? And it was, how do I be joyful and yet intensely sad? And it was the start of such conflict. You know, here I was being given this immense honour And you know, you are, there are so few Australians of the year. Mm. You know, you, Mm. you are part of history on so many levels. And, and, and it's, it's incredible how people look with huge regard at, at that opportunity. And there's so many people had expectations sitting on me because Mm. as you said, family violence hadn't been a topic. There was a conversation that we were ready to have. And so many people knew this could make that change and there was so much on my shoulders to be that voice of change and I didn't want to fail, I didn't want to let people down and I wanted to be good enough and I wanted to be able to create change and make difference Mm -hmm. and that was such a pivotal moment in my life and everything, you know, aligned to be Mm -hmm. a very special evening. The weather was perfect. Mm -hmm. I had some special friends in the audience that had travelled up from Melbourne with me. They had no idea I was going to win and that their their surprise and change. And my family had come from the UK and again had no idea. Mm -hmm. And so their astonishment and pride was It's wonderful. And we had Paul Kelly. We danced, you know, once the photos (laughs) were done and it was like paparazzi, you know. It was Mm. like, oh, my gosh. I was utterly exhausted. Mm. But I um, danced until the night ended with us all being transported back to the hotel and then I had to be up at about 4.30 in the morning to do all the press and all the media and what a crazy journey it became. And it took pretty much nearly three years to slow down. (sighs) The the
3: pace of that people don't realise and look I I I, you know a bit of a disclaimer here I was um in 2019 and I noticed you did a beautiful interview with um with Harry, uh, in your series on One Plus One on the ABC with Harry Harris the one of the the two men who won in 2019 the cave divers I was actually a nominee then so I was sitting with them. Um, and and when you interviewed, oh, I was the ACT's Australian of the Year, and when you interviewed him, and he said, you know, he didn't expect to win, and you said, you know, every and it's true, every nominee doesn't expect it's going to be them. Can I just say, I knew it. I didn't write the speech. I absolutely knew it. I was so excited just to be there. But yeah. coming back to the day uh, and the moment itself, and whilst joyful, as you've. Touched on, it's bittersweet. You also say in your book that at that time you're aware that, and again you put that in the first person, the present tense. I am the person no one wants to be, the mother who has suffered the insufferable. Mm. When you felt the crowd pulling you up by that, did you? Was it pity that you felt, and and what do you do with that? You're absolutely right, and I think the question
4: about pity is such a significant question because. You you need compassion. You need support. You need forgiveness. You need uh, you know there's so many things that you need, but pity is something you don't need, and it repels you. Mm. And yet, what is the difference between pity and sympathy or compassion? And I think that that journey that I you know from those, those early state days of it of Luke being murdered. And people's avoidance of me because they didn't know what to say or they didn't, they didn't want to upset me and felt so sorry for me. Mm. It's kind of a burden where you think, well, how will I ever move forward? How, how do I survive this? How do I have a life? How, who, who are, where do I, you know, what, what do I do with this? Mm. And you have no idea and you just, you know, Every day you get up and it's another day you've got up. And then it, and when you go to bed that night, it's another day you're going to bed and you're crying, or there's a whole stack of stuff that's happened during the course of that day. But the day starts, the day ends, and mm-hmm. you're still there. So, you know, it's very true. And and now I I enjoy people who recognize me and are delighted to meet me, and they approach me mm-hmm. with a genuine interest in talking to me without fear, without pity, and I feel that. So I, I'm no longer that pitied woman. You know, I suppose they still describe me, if, if they haven't heard of that Rosie Batty, you know, she's the one whose son was murdered. Ah, oh, yes, that mm. woman. Mm. So I press forward. I, You know, I press forward and I don't look for pity, I don't see
3: pity, I just continue to make my way through. You've really um, transformed, I think, that pity into a real sense of purpose. You, it's it's mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, and I understand what you mean. I mean, what do you do with all of that pity and, the, and and people looking at you a certain way and you know what they're thinking, that poor, poor woman, but you you, you sort of shifted it to being your purpose instantly, instantly.
4: I think that um, in those very early stages when we were preparing for, you know, with some amazing people that were supporting me and my legal team for um, Luke's criminal inquiry, um, one of those, you know, would preface everything by saying, are you sure you're okay? Mm. And I said, Chris, will you stop asking me? <laughs> because every time you ask me, it reminds me I shouldn't be okay. Yes. I said, yes. can we just get on with it? And I said, I'll tell you if I'm not okay. Mm. I, I'm... F- perfectly capable of saying I don't want to do this or I'm not okay and I'm not going to do that or whatever I have a voice and I will tell you but can we just get on with life and get on with what we need to do and work through this Mm. and you know people didn't know how to be but Mm. I think you're right you know in that there are many people through through tragedy have done some amazing things And they found the strength and and it's given them the purpose that they needed to find to move on in their own individual way. And, you know, and there are examples of of those people, whether it's the Morecams or the Kellys and others that have transformed their tragedy. And it's not an easy journey, but it's an example of we don't always fall in a heap Mm. in the way that people expect, even though our journey is fraught with pain, sadness, and and often, you know, self self soothing in ways that are not always healthy. Mm. Um, but we we we, you know, that strength that we we, we find within us pulls us um, onwards.
3: I guess this is the thing that that fascinates at this stage so much. That strength you mention. You know, we all want to know. Where do you get it from? How do you do it? Uh, I, I, look, I, I'm not. I'm being a little bit facetious here because I know there is no simple answer to that. But you, well, can I just go back again to that that time? And I, I don't want to harp on this, but but I'd like time- to answer that question because oh, okay. I do
4: think yeah. it's one that comes up quite a lot. And so, because I'm asked that question, it's made me very reflective. And I think you know what I I can say is. I had stoicism Mm. modeled to me by my parents and grandparents. And some of that, they weren't, you know, particularly emotionally supportive when I was a young child, but I lost my mother when I was six. And so I've had, you know, through virtue of traumatic circumstances where my mother dies suddenly, not through an accident and not through an illness, um, it was it was something that um, you know, and it certainly wasn't family violence, but certainly what it's made me do is really understand that they have played a significant part in my journey and recovery, in knowing, perhaps, you know that that influence of being modelled and being surrounded by and influenced by in those earlier years. And I think that, you know, and I have a grandmother that lived till she was 100 and she was a mm-hmm. great inspiration to me and stepped in as a, a really key female figure mm-hmm. when my mother died. So I think that, you know, those, those factors combine. And, of course, you've got your own individual personality or whatever makes you that unique individual and human that you are.
3: When I first approached you about our Changemakers exhibition and I asked you to to answer some questions and you did, mention when I asked you about inspiration and you mentioned mm. Stoicism from your family. And it got me thinking a lot about what Stoicism means because I interpret Stoicism as actually, and perhaps incorrectly, as closing down somewhat or, or, or being a little bit cold. What you did was quite the opposite. And and I, look, I do just want to go back to the first time I ever saw you and most Australians was the the day after Luke's tragic death, after being killed by his father, and you went outside of your house and you spoke to the waiting media. Now, as a journalist, I've I've had the uh, the horrible experience of being in those situations before the the death knocks, as we call them, and I had never ever ever in all my years seen anyone respond the way you did. You spoke really clearly, eloquently. You looked shocking. Um. But you had it. What I think what struck me is you had a very clear message and it wasn't, re, clearly wasn't rehearsed and it was off the top of your head. I mean, it didn't sound like, you know, you'd rehearse this in any way, shape or form, but you were really clear about saying, I want you all to know this can happen to anyone. Can you just shed a little bit of light on, on that moment again? Yeah.
4: Look, I I agree. I didn't have an agenda. I hadn't rehearsed a speech. I didn't clearly know what I was doing and had no intention necessarily of speaking to anybody. I actually had thought if someone needs to ask the media to move away and respect my privacy, it should be me. And I didn't like the thought of people doing things on my behalf without consulting with me, even at that very tragic period of time. I had done a diploma in community welfare and I had studied family violence as an elective. So I had a theoretical understanding of family violence and the myths that surrounded it. And some of those myths are definitely that it only happens to certain types of women in certain neighbourhoods. And I think I'd unpack those myths for myself as I'd learned about mm. you know, the, th- the theory of, fam- of family violence. And I, I guess without me even knowing that was within me, that is what came out. And I do not know how or why or the moment, but some things universally align and that was one of those moments Mm -hmm. that universally aligned. I think you're right about stoicism. It can be cold and it can be compartmentalising and that is how I would describe some of my family members. I think what I have been able to develop and learn through the death of my mom and the experience I had as a little girl was perhaps an overabundance of compassion and sensitivity Mm -hmm. and forgiveness. The very things that I think make up a good human being, and I'm not Mm -hmm. suggesting I'm a perfect human being, but they are the qualities that I'm proud of or seek to continue to nurture and nourish and be more of. And when I Stepped out that day. I didn't want to be, I wanted to continue to be the better person that I can be and seek Mm -hmm. to be and not revert to the lesser person. And that's why I I don't speak about Greg, his father, that did that. Mm
1: -hmm. And I
4: think that is something that, uh, you know, I, I try to be respectful or not speak about things, unless I can be, a, you know, in a positive or a, a, in a constructive way, and so I think that you just continue to navigate the best way you can. And a lot of people really were very concerned that I'd spoken to the media because they felt that was like a slippery slope to, I don't, know, some tabloid, horrible experience. And yeah. I have to say that that choice bonded me and ways with the media. Mm. Of their utter regard and respect for me that has served or continued to serve me for the entirety of my advocacy. And I have worked with the media in the best way that I can and, and very well intended and passionate journalists, male and female, who also want to play a part in how do we shift the discourse? How do we, ed- how do we learn more about this societal issue that was, didn't even make headlines. No, Literally, we, before Luke's murder.
3: We didn't have the language. We didn't know how to talk about it. But most importantly, we didn't have people like yourself who had experienced, you know, years and years and years of of violence and family violence who could actually speak about it eloquently, clearly as as someone who had in fact been a victim. And then suddenly there was you.
4: And what I will say, Virginia, and part of the the greater appreciation I have had along my journey is the recognition that I'm a white, privileged, middle-class woman. Mm. I was the ideal victim. It was an unexplained tragedy. How could a a father Mm. murder their son in public at cricket practice? It had all the characteristics, as has the tragic and horrendous Murder of Hannah Clark and her three lovely children. Mm, so mm. I have grown in my appreciation of how do I, the best way I can highlight and, in, and, and get us to consider that other women, other women mm. have other degrees of discrimination and tragedy and trauma and pain that I will never know mm. because of my privilege. And I... You know, I feel very ill equipped to talk about Aboriginal women, dis- people with disability, you know. So I have tried to learn as best I can their journeys and how mm. under, you know, how, how, how much of a struggle it is for their story to be heard and, and to be recognized and to be able to contribute in the, in the very, in the very way that I've been able to,
3: uh, Rosie. Well, firstly, I think there's no such thing as a, as a perfect victim, but I know exactly what you mean. And, and you've always said this, though. You've always been very mindful of of reminding people of 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 your um, so called privilege, being a you know a white woman who people would listen to. But uh, you have had an incredibly Powerful journey as an advocate, and uh, and I want to talk about that. But one thing I think it's worth mentioning is that you know everyone in Australia knows your your story about the 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 murder of Luke. But what I think people don't really know is the backstory about how much work you had done right from the outset. In fact, right after Luke's birth, uh, when the family violence began, how you worked and worked to try and fix things. You went through the court system. You raised the alarm over and over again to the point where I know there was a a, one of the court officers had commented in 2013, the year before Luke was killed, how desperate you were in in a particular court hearing and, in fact, actually wrote down that uh, Rosie seems to be a mess, as in you were trying to do everything you can. In summary, without going into detail, but in summary, the fact that you weren't, all the warnings you gave over many many years to police to courts weren't in fact well heeded, is that something that's changing? Do you think now?
4: Look, what I would say is, you think you understand the different degrees of abuse, Um, and I think certainly when Luke got murdered, the majority of people only considered. Physical abuse as real, real abuse, real violence. So, un- unless it's physical, it doesn't really count. It's not really dangerous. I think one of the things we have learned over recent years is there are many different forms of violence, and in actual fact, psychological abuse and coercive control is when it is potentially the most dangerous. So, I, like many others, did not recognize the degrees of different types of abuse I was experiencing as Mm life-threatening, either to myself or Luke. We were managing the violence, and that's what victims do. They are incredibly strong, incredibly resilient, incredibly resourceful. And over many years, you manage the violence, and you adjust and change things as you need to. (laughs) So you suggesting,
3: and, but are you suggesting some women don't actually acknowledge at all that they are in fact victims of violence?
4: Of course, um, you you know you may have been in a relationship, you're not being hit, um, you know. There's many of us, many many that don't recognise they're in a in an an abusive relationship, and you know it's 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 when perhaps something has escalated, or by being able to confide in family or friends. Or when they do reach out and think, as we in, you know, in, in our society gain a greater appreciation of family violence in the different formats it ta- forms it takes, start to realize this could be them that when they start to reach out to those experts or reach out to people that they can trust and find out information, then it begins a journey. Um, and ultimately what I would say is, the different forms of abuse. And then what I began to understand is I was experiencing systemic abuse, mm-hmm. deliberate tactics, using the police, using the court systems to actually work against you. And this is exactly what happens. So ultimately, you you know, there's a term gaslighting, which is exactly where you are made to look like you are deranged. You are the problem. Now, this is incredibly exactly what the tactics were being used against myself. So as I, my trauma increased, as Mm. I became more distressed, more unhinged, if you like, this is exactly the deliberate tactics and it's incredibly dangerous because our Mm. court systems and our police can see us as the problem Mm. and that they're in can create problems and ultimately the police aren't able to do something that could, you know, intervene with something that could happen at, back then and so it's looking at. And so I, I think for myself, I look at, I never blamed the police actually and I still don't. I think they could have made different decisions as could I. Um, it's lo- easy to look back at all the red flags, which is exactly what did come up in Luke's um coronal inquiry and say this was an opportunity, this was a red flag, but even my forensic psychologist did not see the risk too loop.
3: It's extraordinary though, reading through your biography, um, a mother's story, I, I was shocked at the number of red flags there were over years and years and years and years, and, years. and uh, you know how they, they, they really weren't. they weren't taken seriously.
4: Well they did what they could at that particular period mm. of time, whether it's giving me an intervention order and some you know that was a, a journey of 11 years. Mm. so there can be great gaps. So ultimately, what other are, are tools are there available to you and the system? Ultimately you can only be safe if the perpetrator chooses no longer to be violent. And mm. of course our very society has really um, colluded and condoned violence mm. of men towards women so this is this is you know very complex and 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 ultimately you cannot prevent a an a, a, an intended and premeditated murder with all of the mm. well in t- good intentions of a system that is supposed to but what we can do is work to improve and support rather than blame and minimize risk and not believe. And so ultimately there is so much work still to do. I will say due to our um, Royal Commission here in Victoria, our court systems have greatly improved. We, you know, yeah, so in I Victoria, take in that.
3: In Victoria in particular, and your advocacy uh, in, in actually um, getting the Royal Commission to happen in the first mm. place, which was held back in... in um, was it 2015 that the royal commission was held? Oh, look,
4: yeah. I forget whether it's 2015 or <laughs> 16. Yeah,
3: yeah. I think it was 15 and it reported in 2016. Mm. That's what it was. But and and it was, it, quite frankly, it was fundamentally as a result of you and your advocacy that that even happened. But um, I I noticed that uh, in that you mentioned or spoke about the that gender inequities exist in our society that are the key drivers of violence against women. How did those gender inequities play out for you? How how did you experience those sort of inequities in your life?
4: Look, I think we're all conditioned from the, the day we're born as in our gender stereotypes. And um, and I think we're beginning to, you know, we're certainly continuing to progress forward in understanding and being more aware of those. And certainly I think, again, we're a, a really important part of our, you know, where we're at societally as well, where, you know, the work of Grace Tame and others have been able to really shake us up again into that, you know, um, realisation that, we still have a long way to go to actually recognize women as, as equals in this world. Look, it played out for me in many ways. Ultimately, I was that single mother struggling on Centrelink benefits for a period of time and really, tr- you know, trying to make sure that I didn't lose my home. Mm-hmm. And, and what I will say is that, you know, I grew up as a little girl on a farm. It was inevitable that I was the girl and supposed to marry another farmer or, you know, find my own way, whereas my brothers would inherit the farm. And so that gender difference I've, I've always known. And that wasn't an intended way of being, but that's exactly what happened to my aunties and my father. And so, I, you know, I look back at the, that starting point in my life and I can see how conditioned I've been mm. and how I haven't always recognized or or seen or even known what to do. Mm. Um, and, and I'm 60 now and I can look back at my career, and can see how I would have not been paid the same amount as male colleagues and had a difference in the way that I was treated or expectations placed on me. I can see that now as I look back and I'm and certainly more aware of it, I, I just don't think we have always understood the link between gender inequality and violence that mm. we experience as women. Mm. And I think those links are becoming more understood and more visible and more, you know, a more uh, part of our societal you know, expect, you know, we're, we're starting to recognise that as ordinary everyday people rather than those amazing feminists. And I think you mentioned the Anna Sunner was you know, people yeah. that have been working for their entirety of their careers. Yeah, yeah. And how disconcerting to find that we're still really... Yeah. Pioneering and struggling,
3: <laughs> but then, but then again, and I come back to the power of what you have done. Um, it has been transformative for the nation. Yes, Anne Summers has been working away, and Natasha Stott Despoja, both um are people we've had on this lots series, lots of others as well, and and yeah. many, many, many others. Yeah. But certainly in the sort of the theoretical space, but to have someone such as Rosie Batty come forward and talk and continue to talk and to continue to advocate advocate has really made the difference. Can I ask you too, and I, and I mean that genuinely, I really think you have changed the national conversation. What I've doubt. really
4: been able to appreciate is I've tried to, I've worked with all of those passionate, committed, unrelenting organisations that every day seek to keep women safe mm. through their advocacy, through their refuges through their, you know, continued campaigning. So, so many organizations that work every single day, never with enough funding,
1: <laughs>
4: have, have really struggled to get genuine political leadership. Mm. It's been an onward journey. I have taken great pride in being able to partner with and amplify as best I can and seen the part that I can play in my advocacy. Mm. And, and it is that connection of a, of a story that was so horrific, it captured people's attentions. But I don't have, I didn't have that incredibly important theoretical knowledge base. The historic campaigning and advocacy that those organisations organisations have, have worked with, keep making governments accountable, pressing for change through justice systems that are, Uh, fail people so much you know so so for me to be able to be able to work with those people, those organisations, has really been a source of strength and, and and inspiration to me that have been so important on my journey.
3: Rosie, you set up the Luke Batty Foundation in the year that he died in twenty fourteen. Before you actually became Australian of the Year, what was what was what did you want to do with that? Why did you set that up? Look, I I
4: probably be like very a lot of people when something happens like that, and you capture people's attention you you receive wonderful letters Mm. such kindness on a scale that really gives you hope in humanity it Mm. really is genuine kindness and compassion and you will get people to suggest they will say you should set up a foundation Mm
1: -hmm. and so I Mm -hmm.
4: didn't know how to do it didn't know what I was doing but I that idea had been planted what I will say in hindsight now as I look back I didn't have the professional understanding and knowledge. I didn't have the capacity and time. Mm. I was so overstretched, Mm. but I had this vision and I, and I'm so glad I did it, but it was a very painful journey because it, I was just so exhausted with Mm. everything I was doing. And, you know, to correctly set up the organization to have the right directors and chair. The legal structure, the charity status—you know, these are big things to to mm. um, to 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 work out. You need mm. great advice, the right people, and I got some amazing support. But you know, we outgrew each other in different times as the skill sets and knowledge base needed to morph and change because Mm. the trajectory of my journey was happening so rapidly. Well,
3: and also there was so much demand on your time from media and not just… From everyone, actually. Well, from everyone, yes, of course. Um, and and your advocacy and when it became so clear that you were, you know, such a strong and, and, and clear and good advocate, um, the demands were incredible. So mm. it was a huge thing to take on. But look, just on that, and I think we need to talk about this. So the foundation was criticised by, uh, some people, including a former, uh, Labor leader. We won't mention his name. Um, it deserves who, no mention. <laughs> no, that's, that's why I'm not mentioning we it. We all know after. who you mean. Yes, I don't want to give oxygen to it, but you know, he was revoltingly critical, but, uh, but he criticised the governance and look, eventually I understand that eventually you did close the foundation down. That must have been a huge disappointment or. Did it feel the right thing to do?
4: Look, it was, but the governance was all intact right from the very beginning because ultimately, exactly, you, you, you were very, you have to. And so that, that legal structure, the chair, the experience on the board, all of those things, the governance was completely above reproach. When you go digging around looking for stuff that you can blow up to be, um, you know, any, and this is what happens. This is the sad thing that happens. You know, you become a target for people who you challenge and the backlash is ferocious. And, you know, whether it's myself, Grace Tame, others, and you as a female journalist, we all receive it and it is ugly. And I look at the likes of Adam Goods mm. and he was Australian of the Year just before me and I looked at what happened to him Every week he would go into the football stadium and be booed. I was receiving backlash because of my cut through. Mm. But I didn't have to face a stadium of people rallying against me who didn't even recognize they were being racist or didn't want to see or acknowledge that. You know, I'm so for me it was horrendous to to think that I could be taking money that that was out out of the foundation, which was so not the case. Mm. But in the end, it had become a corporatized organization that I felt I had um I, it was a source of great unhappiness to me. And I felt that, you know, if I was to set one up now, I would have the time, the space and the opportunity to do very carefully. So did, and did you
3: set it up too a little bit too quickly? Is that the the, the major lesson out of that?
4: Look, on one level I did, but on another level um, it was the perfect timing. Mm. And I think that, you know, it was just unfortunate that I needed to have a period of recovery and space to be able to do that. And I think that if you could have put something on hold for a little while and come back to it, but it doesn't work like that. It doesn't. So I've learned a lot of... um, really key things from this experience. And what I did learn was as some of, you know, those board members and chair and and other people that were are still very close to me said, Rosie, in the three years that it was open, it actually did achieve some great things. If this isn't a source of disappointment or failure. And, in fact, all of the money, which was, you know, at that time seemed enormous money to amount to me. It was over a million dollars. I was able to re-give that um, or it, it went to organisations that I'm very proud that it went and to. And it's
3: important, and it, it is important too, of course, Rosie, not to lose sight of what the foundation did do. And I know, you know, when mm. when when it comes to, you know, closing down something like that, it would, yes, yeah, you would be very focused on what feels like a sense of failure. But I
4: felt like I'd lost Luke again. No. I felt like I lost Luke again. And the grief I went through... It wasn't my decision in the end to close the organization, unfortunately. So I hadn't I was very disempowered as well. So it was very conflicting, a very difficult time. But I think what it did allow me to do was grieve more deeply and at a deeper level and a more healthy level, maybe, the loss of Luke, because all those years of adequacy I had helped me avoid more pain. Mm in some Mm. ways, and because I wasn't ready to go there. And so I think, you know, when you look at people and judge them because of their stoicism or their strength, you don't always realise what's happening in their own wall, you know, behind their own four walls, in their own private moments or with people they trust. Mm. And for me, I was still going through a journey of PTSD, trauma, grief, and all of these things. And so, of course, my mental health wasn't great, but I was putting on that brave face. So when people kind of, you know, some of the horrible criticisms was, well, she didn't love her son enough. How can she be standing upright? How could she be doing that? Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen quite a few of those horrible comments. Um, People just can't trust that people have you know, we handle things in different ways. And I can't say that my way is right. It was just what I was driven to do at the time.
3: So in a sense, closing the foundation, in fact, difficult and traumatic as that was, it also, I guess, forced you to take a step back and, and give you the space that you needed. And, you know, something like PTSD is, uh, and it's different for everyone, but uh, it needs space, doesn't it?
4: Well, it's, it takes time to come out from a traumatic event and then you are perhaps managing it and dealing with it and living with it. for I don't know whether it's forever, but certainly it's a long, difficult journey. And I think that, you know, I look back now and see that sometimes things don't go the way we plan or we expect, but it doesn't mean that it's a failure. And now I look back and I'm quite relieved. I see that... I could have done things differently with the knowledge and skills I now have. Mm. And I'd be forever grateful and appreciative of the people that really came into the organisation and were part of that and the, what we learned together. And, you know, I'm proud of that. But, you know, yes, I would approach things differently now because I'm at a different place in my life and I've learned a lot of things and developed a lot of uh, – continue to develop skills. But um, I would – you know, to, to have done it and then realize it is a difficult journey. And there's many or not-for-profit organizations and foundations that get set up that will struggle to have a sustainable state, sustainability, but we set it up with a passion and to continue to keep it going. It, it, we don't, you know, we may be the only ones because of our own personal experience, that has that passion, it's a very difficult and road to tread. It is,
3: and look, you're not the only one who has been in that position. I can think of a few others, and even colleagues of mine um, who've experienced that sort of thing too. In the passion, in the moment, taken the opportunity to set something up, and then being shocked at uh, or disappointed that it hasn't, it hasn't. Kind of rolled on or eventuated as much as they had hoped.
4: Um, we're going, and I've taken great comfort in speaking to some of those yeah. people who've had those experiences, yeah. and we can share yeah. in ways that help in in how you know, and it, and it ha- it does you know, there, it does make a difference when you can actually share with people who've been there and struggled in the same similar ways, and you think, wow, so it's not necessarily just me. This is actually a very difficult road to. Navigate. It is, and it's
3: not necessarily just you at all. And in fact, sometimes these things can take various iterations before they find their own feet. They find their own space in the in the That's wider right. sphere. We're going to have to take a quick break, um, and then I want to come back and talk a little bit more specifically about what it's like being a change maker. We'll be back in just a moment.
2: And 365 day returns.
3: Hello and welcome back. Rosie Batty, what an extraordinary story and what an incredible, incredible journey you've been on. I think that was your dog to say
4: hello. <laughs> yes, I, I was waiting. I was waiting. Well,
3: uh, he has been very, very, uh, um, very good throughout. Just I just want to uh, quote something that the fabulous Australian writer and one of my absolute heroes, Helen Garner, wrote about you. Uh, she wrote mm. a beautiful, beautiful piece about you in the Monthly. But there's this great line where she talks about how you've got this <laughs> this fantastic bullshit detector, and then she says she <laughs> says that you apply that equally to your own public persona. And, and then she quotes you saying, I have to be careful, and she, Rosie says this with her rye green, that my little halo doesn't slip down and strangle me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that made me really laugh and she does comment about your sense of humour. That little halo, I don't really believe that you've got a halo at all. But, yeah, do you find you have to pull yourself up because you have been so much in the public eye and people tell you all sorts of things and every time you step out they'll be telling you how much they love you. Um, Do you have to pull yourself back every now and then? No. Look, when that interview with Helen was was
4: really within the first few months, it was really quite – Close, you know, close to 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 losing Luke, and so everything I was doing, you know, everybody thought that I was this exceptional person, and I was like, oh my gosh, if they only knew. <laughs> um, not that I'm particularly bad; it's just that I am a normal person, and had suddenly been catapulted into this very weird stratosphere of celebrity. Mm. Kind of, is it celebrity? Is it what is this? And so I do bring it back to reality when people, you know, meet me and say, oh, I'm having a fangirl moment <laughs> and I say, oh, for goodness sake, you know, I am just Do you, that, Do you hate that though? Do you find am. that
3: a bit awkward?
4: No, I try to move through it very mm. quickly because ultimately it's a real honour for people to have. And often these people, who no matter how professional and who they are, it's because they have a backstory mm. and, uh, and inevitably I will have been a source of inspiration mm. or hope or a vision, of possibility, and so when they when they say things like that to me, how you know how amazing. But what brings you back to down to earth is either your family, mm-hmm. or the people who have known you forever, or just walking my dogs down at the dog mm-hmm. beach when you know your dog does something that annoys somebody else. Like, hey, get your dog <laughs> under control, you know, or something <laughs> like that. And you you realize, you know, th- there is no tickets on me. I'm just an and I look. My dad is a very ordinary. D- a down to earth person, and and I've been brought up that way, and I, I always want to be that approachable, inclusive, thoughtful person. Um, and I hope if I, I'm ever not, people pull me. You know,
3: up. It, it's obviously very important, and uh, to have. People around you that do keep you grounded, and this is something that's been a bit of a theme in in changemakers. Um, I, I really had a chuckle at the story about, and it was it sort of felt inappropriate even laughing about it. But uh, one of your friends contacted you. After you did that first press conference, that media conference outside your house, and everyone was saying, Oh, you know, poor Rosie and Rosie, don't talk to the media and don't do this and don't do that. And and one of them contacted you and said, Woman, you look shit. Fix yourself up.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Tiny yourself up, woman, you look like shit. I loved it. And do you know what? When we talked earlier about pity, people were, you know, heartbroken for me. They were deeply Touched themselves, of course, because they knew Luke. Kids were in the same class as him, you know, all of this. But Ben wasn't frightened of my grief. Mm. And he would ring me every day and he rang me for four years. Wow. Now, he has his own story from childhood. And, you know, I don't disclose what those stories are. But, you know, so he wasn't frightened of grief. He just ploughed straight in. And I needed that. Mm. Gosh, I needed that. I look for – I mean, people were horrified. My close (laughs) friends were thinking, well, how can he speak to her like this? And I would be laughing. I'd be laughing at how inappropriate Mm. he would be, Mm. how deliberately provocative he would be, and it continued. And he would say to me, oh, I can't even read my newspaper without your head being (laughs) on the front of it. You know, so he constantly – had you know digs at me and it was it it all made me laugh and I think what I remember you know I'll always appreciate from him and he's still a dear friend is he wasn't afraid of my grief he
3: wasn't afraid of
4: upsetting me Mm. he just went in as a normal person having a normal conversation that's such a,
3: a, a a good lesson isn't it not to be afraid of someone's grief in order to help them
4: and look, to be honest, I don't know how I would have been with somebody in my situation. I, I, you know, I've learned a lot from being in this situation and being that person. Um, but people genuinely, you know, don't know what to say. And I would say to them, it's okay to say, I don't know what to say. Mm. This is shit. Mm. And give people permission to just be embarrassed or uncertain mm. and you know you you end up kind of helping people to be in that moment that you you know with you i guess
3: it's um unfortunately we're going to have to to wind up because we've gone way over time and it's been so lovely talking to you i could talk to you for hours or for the whole day but i i just want to bring you back to i mentioned earlier that you have been hosting a series on the abc the 1 plus mm. 1 interview series and your series is looking at accidental leaders Of which you are probably the most famous accidental leader. Unlike you, most hadn't necessarily experienced extreme, um, you know, the trauma, but some pretty shocking circumstances, nevertheless. I'm thinking of people like Walter Mikak, who lost his two daughters in Tasmania. and, and
4: look with with um, Harry Harris. And, and Harry was I was yeah, thinking of
3: too, but if, what did you learn from that series? Was it was there a sort of a single thing that really resonated with you about all of you as accidental leaders thrust into the public eye?
4: I think that what I did learn was each of those people embraced the opportunity to meet with me in that series to have this conversation, and they came. To the conversation with me in a way that perhaps they felt more comfortable to do so than they would if I had been a trained journalist, mm-hmm. because there was that understanding of knowing who I was and the journey I had been through. They didn't know me personally, they just knew of me through my advocacy and experiences. Um, and that was it, that was so comfortable for me to, to really appreciate that mm-hmm. and to understand that people who have been through life-changing experiences and just done the best they can with what they've been given to make some kind of change or difference. There is, a, I, I guess, that, um, an understanding that isn't necessarily expressed in words mm, yeah. that we can trust, mm. we can trust each other. There's no agenda here mm. other than to learn from each other in ways that may other people may get inspiration and, 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 and in some way support, you know, help people in their own journey through life. And I think we do, you know, by having meaningful conversations, we gain insight and into our own lives. Uh, we gain comfort, the fact that we aren't unique always, um, and that actually people can experience horrific things and survive and go on to get through life and find moments of happiness and joy that seem impossible mm-hmm. and and maybe you know that's what i have got from other people the fact that i can get through this i can find a way of living that is not going to be full of pain at every moment of every day and when you are in those bleak periods and for me the bleakest period was probably 3 years later And it was around the time of losing my foundation as it was all kind of coming to that. I didn't want my life to continue. It was so painful and I couldn't see that it would ever end and the pain would always be there. I just wanted something to take me out Mm -hmm. and I almost willed a terminal illness or an accident. And so I look at that and say people thought the worst of my journey was going to be at the time of Luke's murder, mm. the time it happened and those immediate weeks and months. And some people don't understand that when you have a, an angry outburst or an, an extreme emotional reaction to something that hurt, that, that they can't understand or they feel hurt by that it comes out for years mm. and you're dealing with pain and anger and, for, and and a whole stack of emotions that you didn't realize were still going to come out months mm-hmm. and years later. So the journey for all of us isn't wrapped up neatly within the first few weeks and the first few months and maybe in the first year of loss. You know, it's it's a painful, difficult journey for, 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 for most of us, I would say, a lot for a longer time than that. And I don't think we always fully appreciate that the support we're ready to give with all the goodwill stuff, you know, the cooking of meals and the, you know, the flowers and the kindness that we experience in those first few weeks and months, genuine, disp- dis- you know, displays of care, we need it for, you know, we need it down the track. We need to continue to be included in invitations to things and for people to continue to keep that connection going but we realize that life has changed and you you grieve the life that you lost and it's, you have to embark on a new journey and some of those relationships and friendships separate but new new relationships develop and i think that that's that's where I'm at now. Is those are established friendships that have 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 a security for me that um, that have more than replaced other, you know, seeming friendships that perhaps didn't go the distance.
3: Is is that what has pulled you through those periods of feeling like you didn't want life to go on?
4: Oh, for sure. I think that. At the time when I was grieving the loss of the foundation, I felt an abject failure, a fraud. Every every bit of self-loathing and everything I'd battled to keep perspective on and kept at bay just consumed me. And I retreated and kept fairly isolated. And it was those people who still no matter seeing me my most vulnerable or what I would have said is my worst display of myself, they saw beyond that and saw the real me and never lost the real me. And being able to know that those people, and they'd been there through the entirety of the journey, they mattered. They mattered more than anyone else. And so now those genuine friendships have weathered those storms. And some of them have been key men in my life. You know, my father, my brothers, but also Bryce, who who wrote my book, um, Justin, who is my agent, um, Ben, who is that guy that told me <laughs> to tighten myself up. There have been amazing men who have been incredibly supportive. Peter Starr, that was my media advisor, incredible supports and continue to be those genuine friendships. Um, they have helped me regain who I am and like myself and 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 recognize I am flawed I am flawed like every other human being trying to be the best I can in this world trying to do work that makes some kind of difference and to just accept myself as less than perfect is an ongoing battle for myself as I strive to be that person and fell short and I am not alone in that either and so I talk openly about these things because I hope that it gives other people insights into themselves they say you know what she's right (laughs) you know I I am that person too and and it gives us permission to be perhaps that little bit more vulnerable and and know that we can get through this or we can navigate our way through very challenging and disappointing and sad times.
3: Rosie (laughs) On top of everything else, you're incredibly wise. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, I wish we could go on talking forever, but we're going to have to close there. But it has been such an honor to, to sit here and talk with you and, and to, uh, just hear you share so honestly. And I know it's an incredibly powerful thing for, for anyone that hears. As you speak this way, so thank you, and thank you for your generosity of your time and your and your your gift of of sharing. That's it's it. We are better for it. So thank you. There's so much in that. There's just so much that I will take away, and I'm sure all our listeners will too to to mull over. Um, so many pearls of wisdom. And I want to thank all of you, those of you who have stayed with us for this wonderful conversation with Rosie and also throughout this series, the Broad Talk Change Changemakers series. Martin and I are going to take a break and hopefully come back with some more change makers later this year or early next year. But it's been a fantastic journey and we've thoroughly enjoyed it and really, really appreciate your input, your feedback, and your reviews and rating of Broad Talk. So make sure you do download and follow Broad Talk wherever you're listening to us on whatever platform. And that way, the next time we have an episode, it will drop automatically into your little box. And I really look forward to spending some more time with you again, a little bit down the track. And don't forget you can keep up to date with what uh, we're doing at Broad Talk on my Facebook page or our Broad Talk Facebook page. On Twitter, you'll find me at Virginia underscore house. And, of course, we're at Insta on Broad Talkers. We also have a little website, broadtalk.net, where there will be bits and pieces and the occasional blog as well. You can find all our episodes for all four series of Broad Talk, including uh, Australian Women Changemakers, but also Leadership. And we did a huge series in the first year of Broad Talk um, with some fascinating interviews and some fascinating people. And we're certainly planning to come back with many, many more. So do stick with us. But in the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us. And don't forget, keep talking.